that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican online journal at northamanglican.com. And my co-host today is Deacon Andrew Brazier. Andrew, how are you? Doing good. How are you doing, Jesse? Very good. Very well. Um, It's been an interesting couple of weeks for uh, Orthodox Anglicanism in North America, wouldn't you say? I think so. It's probably been one of the most uh, exciting and uh, highly contentious uh, times for North American Anglicanism in quite a long time. Agreed. Yes, if you're listening uh, sort of contemporaneously with the release of this podcast sometime in the summer of 2019, um, I always like to leave open the possibility that uh, a thousand years from now our our voices are still being heard and (laughs) and, uh, enjoyed by by generations into the future. But if you're just listening to this podcast this week, then you may be aware that the 2019 prayer book of the Anglican Church in North America has caused quite a stir amongst uh, prayer book traditionalists and non-traditionalists alike. You know, it's been real interesting to see the, the back and forth. And I think the North American Anglican has done a great job of kind of hosting this debate and letting people, you know, go back and forth with their uh, their opinions, uh, some of them very nuanced. And it's been good, in my opinion, to see the back and forth and the uh, intricacies of what people are noticing about the uh, ACNA 2019 prayer book and how it differs from uh, previous uh, prayer books and how it's similar to uh, the 79 prayer book as well. Right, and... Um... Of course, one of the major, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the major points of contention has been this claim, which comes from the ACNA Constitutions and Canons, that the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is supposed to be the model for liturgy and belief. Is that how it's worded, Andrew? Do you remember? You know, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm drawing off on memory, but also pulling up the good old Google as we chat. As I recall, it says that the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is the standard uh, for worship and for discipline. And then uh, the other uh, prayer books, referencing the classic uh, prayer books, is the uh, standard for, or is a standard for the worship, but not necessarily for the discipline. And you know what? I've got it pulled up right here. It's in Article 1 of the Constitution. Uh, paragraph 6, which is known as the Fundamental Declarations. And if you've got a 2019 Book of Common Prayer, as I recall, these Fundamental Declarations are in the back under the documentary, uh, foundation or Foundational Documents section. But what it says, real quick, is we receive the Book of Common Prayer as set forth by the Church of England in 1662, together with the ordinal attached to the same, as a standard for Anglican doctrine and discipline, 
and with the books which preceded it as the standard for the Anglican tradition of worship. And so Jesse and I were talking just before we, we started recording, and I think it's interesting to note that the 1662 is not only uh, a standard uh, for discipline, or excuse me, a standard for doctrine, but it's also a standard for uh, discipline, uh, meaning that those rubrics carry authority as to what can or can't be done. And then the mm-hmm. books that precede the 1662 are... Uh, Quote, well, this is interesting. It says, as the standard for the Anglican tradition of worship. So they've put in tradition there to, to kind of alleviate a requirement that it's the standard for worship, but it's the standard for the Anglican tradition of worship uh, for the preceding books. Hmm. Sounds like uh, almost like relegating them to the historically interesting documents at the back of certain other prayer books. That, that is definitely one way of, of looking at it, and that's, that's kind of a good point. I haven't really made that comparison, but uh, it clearly evokes, and you can see what, what ACNA was doing here on balancing the, uh, I don't want to say the the extreme Reformed and the extreme Anglo-Catholics, but um, they're the kind of the regular, you know, uh, Anglo-Reformed and the Anglo-Catholics in, uh, in Anglicanism you know, have their pet prayer books, typically the 1549 for the Anglo-Catholics and the 1552 for the uh, Anglo-Reformed, which my two cents real quick is interesting. Both those prayer books only saw the light of day for a short period of time, but uh, they can be used (laughs) as influences on the tradition of worship. But to me, the buck really stops at 1662. Um, I think really 1559 has a good argument because it's very similar to the 1662, which used for almost 100 years you got to take out you know about uh 15 years for the english civil war my history runs a little bit rusty all of a sudden yeah well you know and i i almost i take more of a sort of long view of the english reformation mm-hmm. than a lot of these anglo reformed guys um you know i i just don't think if at any point you're saying here's the window when classical anglicanism was and it's like a t- 10 or 15 year window I'm yep. like wow well this is a really unimpressive uh, tradition mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um, I, I think that um, you know, I'm the sort of person who thinks we have to read Cranmer in context and not try to uh, reinvent him to be you know a sort of a Zwinglian or some sort of you know proto-Anglo-Catholic but at the same time you know I don't think uh, I don't think everything that the Oxford movement did was necessarily at odds with reformational principles either. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that being said, hey, listener, if you're not part of the ACNA, I know we have a lot of people who are um, coming from the Continuum and other Anglican jurisdictions. Maybe you're a conservative Episcopalian. For whatever reason, maybe you're not an Anglican at all. This might sound like a weird sort of uh, inside baseball conversation, but hopefully, and we are going to um, get back to uh, pick up this Peter Toon uh, book that we that was begun by me and uh, Father Isaac called "Knowing God in the Liturgy" um, in a minute. But you know, one thing that Andrew and I are trying to show is that what Toon talks about in relation to the 79 prayer book, much of it is relevant to 
the current sort of uh, debates being waged over the 2019 prayer book. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I definitely would agree. I mean, it's no secret that the, the task force, the ACNA Liturgy Task Force, uh, stated that, uh, I'm not quoting, but that they use the 79 prayer book as, as the basis, the foundation uh, in which they were going to build upon. Uh, well, maybe not build upon, that's really <laughs> throwing them under the bus, but using it as the foundational text to work from. You know, you got to start somewhere. And it was pretty clear that the, the Liturgy Task Force uh, didn't go to like uh, the 1928 American or the 1662 Church of England and then try to modernize the text, you know, uh, like what the mm -hmm. Reformed Episcopal Church did uh, in 2003, where the REC took the 1928 American, and then uh, what I, I kind of say they did is they took the 1662, looked at it, and they uh, anglicized, it was already Anglican, but they Englished, you know, anglicized in that sense, you know, the 1928 in certain aspects to make it yeah. more... Uh, uh, amenable to the 1662 prayer book. And they even plopped in a alternative uh, communion rite straight from the 1662. And ACNA task force didn't do that. They didn't take the 28 and then work minor, you know, changes to it uh, and do like a minor modernization. It took the 79 prayer book and it did do, you have to give them credit, they did a drastic uh, change to the 79. It's not like you just look at the 79 and there's minor changes here and there. They did, you know, reformat, go back to a lot of the classic language, but they didn't just pull over everything that's classic. They didn't just start mm -hmm. from the classic resource and try to modernize the language. So you definitely are going to see the 79 wearing the clothing of the 28 here and the 1662 there, or still wearing right. the clothing of the 79. So it's very right. much a, a document that's... Um, an evolution from the 79 prayer book. Yeah, these this is really um, a big part of the conversation that people sort of are talking about or talking around in some ways without maybe using the most clear language. Um, and it's been, it was a part of uh, the article from Jacob Hootman and from uh, Ben Jeffries. And um, it's this issue of structure versus clothing, as you're kind of putting it. And I think, I guess in Aristotelian terms, you could say it's the formal principle versus the material principle. Um, and the form of the 2019 prayer book, uh, and by Father Jeffrey's own admission, they began with the 1979 Book of Common Prayer as sort of we're assuming that a lot of people are starting here. This is their starting point. And they tried to 1662 the material around it. Whereas, as you described, um, other projects like the REC, uh, say the Modern Language Book of Common Prayer even, uh, begins with a 1662, 1928, which is in line with that tradition. Um, form and then they add modern or updated language as the material principle. And so it's they're working in opposite directions in an interesting way. Um, and there are implications for what we would call common prayer or the lack thereof uh, that comes from doing it one way or the other. And it's the sort of thing that uh, Peter Toon addresses probably better than you or I could just shooting off the cuff here. 
But um, you know, definitely as we better get, than Knox. Yeah. Well, as we get into this text, I mean, I hope the listener will, you know, follow along. Which, uh, as I mentioned in the previous episode, you can go to New Scriptorium, which is a terrific website. Go to the Tune Collection um, and find this uh, yeah, Knowing God in the Liturgy. And we're about halfway through the first chapter, and we're going to begin here with this section heading, My Purpose in Writing. But... Um, what do you think, Andrew? Is there any other sort of 2019 uh, updates or sort of uh, hot takes before we get into our text here? Or You know, I mean, really the only thing I'll add is that when you're listening, uh, listener, to this podcast, it could be really profitable right now or even in the future. You know, if you're new to Anglicanism and you're picking up the 2019 prayer book and you know, you run into some grumpy old curmudgeon who's like, I don't know why they didn't do it from the 28 prayer book, you know, what's their problem? <laughs> then you can listen to this and kind of see, well, listen to, to Peter Toon and his criticism of the 79, and you may hear where, like, well, that kind of bleeds over into something that's in the 2019 prayer book. Not everything, necessarily, but I think it's worth thinking about what's happening right now, listening to what Peter Toon's insight was back in this essay from, I think, 1992, as I recall, and seeing that you know, there's a reason for uh, people having concern over uh, the route of the 2019 prayer book. Uh, the only other thing I'll add is that they're doing a traditional language um, version of the uh, 2019 prayer book. So that's a project that's ongoing. It'll be interesting to see what happens if any language is restored. Uh, the joke that's been with, with my friends is how I've been pushing for miserable offenders to be added back, uh, not well, only because you know, yeah, not not only because <laughs> of our name of our podcast, but just because <laughs> that's that's just true blue Anglican theology, uh, which is true blue, you know, taking it from Scripture that uh, in our sins that we're truly uh, uh, miserable, regardless if we feel that we are miserable or not. That's just the the state that we're in uh, until we receive grace. But um, just snippets like that, I'm curious if those will be added back into the traditional language version. And then, uh, as you pointed out before, Jesse, you'll have two different prayer books uh, with two different uh, theologies, then, uh, which is not going the route of common prayer. So things to keep yeah. in mind as we yeah, read through. I, right, exactly. I mean, I sort of liken it to... Um, very often in a mainline Protestant denomination, you'll have two Sunday morning services. There's traditional service and the contemporary service, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, which functionally really just eventually means you've got two different churches meeting at the same building mm -hmm. um, because those people will never show up to the other service. They'll never, yeah. you know, mingle. They've chosen their identity as one or the other. And I think that um, there's a real parallel there with having a province where um, entire different books are, are being permitted that are not similar enough to be thought of as different versions of the same book. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, much as I'm a traditional language guy, I think 
in my head, oh, you mean the traditional language 2019 Book of Common Prayer isn't just the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, Yeah. right? Yeah. Like, according to the constitutions and canons, it really should be, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, all of that is to say, I don't want to be too snarky or down. Um, I know a lot of people who are really excited about the 2019 and um, there are some interesting projects where people are sort of trying to uh, articulate a roadmap for using the 2019 Book of Common Prayer in a way that is traditional and in line with uh, the historic ritual use of the Protestant Episcopal Church and the Church of England. And I think that's a, a laudable goal. I, I think that it'd be nice if it wasn't just... You know, if doing things the Anglican way wasn't just an option amongst many within an Anglican prayer book, mm -hmm. but it's nice that that option exists at the very least. It's better than having it not exist. And I know we said we were going to jump to the essay, but let me say this too. One of the things that on that project of, of it's so many young uh, clergymen and young laity who are pushing for mapping out a road to using the 2019 prayer book in a classical sense it gives me encouragement that uh it's the rising generation that uh has this uh drive to do that along with the whole traditional language project uh i give a shout out to uh, jacob uh, hootman and if i'm butchering your last name jacob man feel free to butcher mine because no one gets it right either but uh <laughs> but jacob i mean he is a young man. Like, I don't think he's hit 20 yet. I think he's still a youthful uh, 19, but very well more learned than his 19 years of age. And he's the mm -hmm. one who drafted an entire, uh, not only uh, communion offices, but also daily offices, and I think the minor offices in traditional language that really kicked the uh, ACNA Liturgy Task Force off into looking into doing a, uh, a version of the prayer book in traditional language. So it, it at least warms my heart that it's coming from the rising generation to take hold of the classic Anglican theology. Uh, but I take your point that it's still uncommon prayer uh, in a age in which we're trying to seek back to our Anglican roots, which has always been rooted in common prayer. Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I laud the effort and I applaud the spirit behind it. Um, I just don't know if it's the ideal solution to what admittedly is a less than ideal situation. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Hey, if you're a, a priest or a bishop in the ACNA and you've spent your whole life with the 79 prayer book, I hope you'll take a look at the younger generation and see where these... Um, more classical liturgical um, interests are coming from and uh, you know maybe it wouldn't be such a terrible idea to uh, acknowledge and um, empower these younger folks who are really interested in getting to the tradition um, but without uh, belaboring the point <laughs> I suppose we ought to um, I guess Come sit at the feet of the Reverend Doctor, the late Reverend Doctor Peter Toon, who um, has terrific things to say about liturgy and the Book of Common Prayer. Um, yeah, this section, halfway through the first chapter, is called "My Purpose in Writing," and 
I'll just go ahead and read the first couple of paragraphs and okay. find a good stopping point for us to discuss. Therefore, I write this book as a way of saying that I am an Anglican, that I want to be a biblical and Catholic Anglican, and that I see no hope of being an honest Anglican only within the context provided by further developments of the revisionist tradition of liturgy contained in the Book of Common Prayer 1979 and the Book of Alternative Services 1985. Therefore, the witness of the prayer book societies in the USA, Canada, England, and elsewhere is necessary. Classic Anglicanism in which sacred scripture has central place and where truly common prayer with its unique asceticism and spirituality arising from the prayerful reading of scripture and receiving of Holy Communion must not be allowed to disappear for want of effort. If I were asked for a biblical text to set forth what I have to say, I would choose the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way, and walk therein? And ye shall find rest for your souls. Chapter 6, verses 16. I call upon Anglicans to survey the history and experience of the churches to which they belong, to contemplate and think seriously about the common prayer tradition, and then to compare the old with the new. I hope they will choose the old way, not to bury their heads in the sands of the past, but with the intention of working to see its perfection for the Anglican way for today and tomorrow. For in the new way upon which parts of the Anglican communion are traveling, I do not see any long-term rest for souls. Well, some powerful words there, Andrew. Um, anything jump out at you from that passage? Uh, I think we just end the podcast right there. You pretty much yeah. said it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, Dr. Tune, uh, I, look, I'm a, I don't know what you'd call I guess I'm a tunophile. I don't know, tune tonight but uh i love his we'll way come up writing. we need to come up with that term and and uh add me to the list there we go um he he has a way of writing that i really appreciate like c.s lewis you know that familiar language i think you mentioned this on the last podcast too that when you fall mm-hmm. into that that familiar language you feel at home but um i digress i, I like how he uh references uh, jeremiah and like my personal blog uh i think i've had referenced a couple of items and I've already forgotten because my blog is not worthwhile. But <laughs> from Proverbs no. about not moving the uh, the boundary markers. No, actually that that comes from Deuteronomy. I should know better. Um, but it's interesting to read that, uh, especially when we're talking about a revision of the prayer book, and especially when he points to the Book of Alternative Services, which is uh, the British uh, version of prayer book revision. Uh, as many of you may know. Historically, and today, the Church of England could not issue a new Book of Common Prayer without parliamentarian approval, excuse me, without a parliament's approval, and that's because the Church of England being established. And so when the Church Mm -hmm. of England came up with its proposed 1928 prayer book, different from the American 28, uh, it was voted down by parliament. So the Church of England got around it, the bishops did, by eventually coming up with a book of alternative services, not a book of common prayer. So, uh-huh. the, so the book of common prayer is still a 1662 in England, but you'll hardly ever see it used. 
Uh, instead, you'll see uh, what is now Common Worship, which is the successor book to the Book of Alternative Services. Uh, so even the, the Book of Alternative Services didn't last for, I don't know, 15, maybe not even 20 years before Common Worship came out. Mm-hmm. And um, I find it interesting that you know, Diocese of Quincy recently announced that they were not going to use the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, but they were going to use the Common Worship, and apparently they've been using Common Worship uh, ever since they first started with ACNA, and uh, it's just basically yeah. using a, a different, you know, the, the British version of revision, uh, of revised liturgy, so. Right, I guess at some point during their early in their formation, they decided that this was slightly more conservative than the 29 or something, and it's sort of been grandfathered into the sort of small-t tradition of their diocese, but it is sort of an odd and interesting uh, development, to say the least. Uh, wait, Peter Toon mentions the, the work of the, the prayer book societies, and I guess uh, we mentioned this in the previous episode, but he was the president of the, the American Prayer Book Society uh, at the time that he was writing this book. He's obviously was born and raised in, studied in England, but came to America. And uh, a big part of his perspective is that the Church of England that he left behind was liturgically far more, you could say, traditional or um, in line with common prayer than the Episcopal Church that he encountered when he came to the States in uh, the 90s. And so his perspective is very interesting, and it's one of these situations where I think it's always useful to have someone appraise your situation with an outsider perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that your norms are not their norms, and when you know, you know, you can sort of establish, like, well, what are your foundational principles or acceptable norms and you compare and you see you know where someone's coming from it can be very useful for saying well maybe we're assuming some things as normative or we've sort of uh, accepted them as simply the way they are that should not be the way that they are (laughs) for lack of better words but but yes the the prayer book society being uh, um, to this day a great force for uh, traditional prayer book um, proclamation and you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for promotion yes 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 and you make a good point no no you're fine you're fine you make a good point that you know having that outsider viewpoint is extremely helpful and useful because you're not going to notice what that person notices I think that's the reason why uh, Alexis de uh, Tokyo Valley and I'm terrible with French, so I'm sure I butchered his name, but his famous work, Democracy in America, written in the 1830s, I want to say, is still popular to this day uh, because Mm. it's a Frenchman commenting on American society, granted in the uh, time of the early republic, about, you know, this whole American movement, you know, what is it they're doing trying to do this republican form of government, and his perspective has always been a classic work that's been in print continuously because it's unique he really kind of nails down how we act as americans for better or for worse 
uh, because of that perspective. And so I dare say that Toon is kind of a Tokyo Valley of the uh, liturgical condition of modern Anglicanism. Because uh, really, a lot of it has not changed, um, even with the 2019 prayer book. I mean, it just got issued at the time of this podcast, within the past, or just got approved. There's been draft texts available for the past two or three years, but the status that Dr. Toon is talking about in terms of Anglican worship uh, is really, you know, hasn't changed much at all. So it's mm-hmm. very valuable to have his input and to learn uh, uh, his kind of shock about seeing the, the status of affairs when it comes to uh, worship in the American church. Yeah, um, and if you're not reading along for the listener, when he writes Common Prayer Tradition, the C, the P, and the T are all capitalized. I mean, and I think that gets back to this sort of what we would say the structural or the formal um, element of these prayer books is when you have um, multiple communion rites, when you have a sort of, you know, I I hate to say it because it sounds demeaning, but maybe it's appropriate, a choose-your-own-adventure liturgical experience then you no longer have the expectation, which used to be, I mean, this was by canon law in the Church of England. When you walked into an Anglican parish, they were using the prayer book. And you would be able to expect that the same liturgy that you're used to back home is going to be used here. And if they were, you know, messing around with it, there was, you know, somebody could be, dragged in front of a judge you know it was taken seriously um and so many of the sort of variations that are now permitted uh are sometimes presented as though uh well hey we need to um make room for or acknowledge the the history of of uh variety that's taken place and I just think wow you know in my opinion when you fracture a bone the the best thing to do is to get into the business of healing that thing rather than trying to look at each little shard and acknowledge it for the interesting history that it represents you know (laughs) I mean Mm -hmm. and I think that we we sometimes spend a little too much time trying to meet people where they're at, quote-unquote. And mm-hmm. really, the, at the end of the day, most people just will accept what a bishop says or what the authority says. Like, hey, if this is our tradition, then we want it. Um, and people, you know, it may take some, you know, it may, some people may walk away, but I'm uh, I'm digressing here, but I, but I do think that the formal principle of what you experience, I mean, just flip through a 1662 Book of Common Prayer, flip through a 1928 Book of Common Prayer, and then open up a 1979 Book of Common Prayer and tell me that it's not just a completely different experience altogether. And then look at the 2019 and tell me what does it represent this tradition of, of sort of gradual change or does it represent this break, this fracturing into um, many different pieces? 
Uh, yeah. And I, yeah. and I would say that that fracturing is part of the breakdown of what Peter Toon calls capital C common, capital P prayer, capital T tradition. Because mm-hmm. what he, Dr. Toon's getting at is, is really Anglican identity. Is, you know, if you go into any sort of tradition and you try to be something other than that tradition, then why not go off and be a different tradition? Uh, mm-hmm. Or if you're just trying to make a... Well, really what we see is we don't... We see some, you know, forms of Anglicans who, you know, we we joke about, you know, like the, the ext- what I would call the extreme version of Anglican Reformed, which is what we joke is like, well, there are Presbyterians with prayer books. And there's, you know, people out there who are like that. You mm-hmm. know, I don't, you know, hold anything against them, you know, in my heart, but I do feel like except that right. they might be disobedient to their well, own yeah, that, and, that, and that's what I was yeah, about to get to is that like if you're if you're disobeying the tradition of that you have, and if you're ignoring rubrics or bringing in something outside your tradition, then you are being something other than, than what you're supposed to be. And the same jab goes right back at you to those who I call the Anglo uh, papalists, who tack mm-hmm. on so many things that are outside uh, Anglicanism, outside the prayer book, outside 39 articles, or they. You know, toss away the thirty-nine articles completely. You know, I just I have no respect. You know, be who you're going, who you're supposed to be. You know, if you claim to be an Anglican, then be an Anglican. You know, and the same goes with other traditions because this problem—it's a very American problem. You know, it's basically let's make a, a quilt. Everybody bring their patches, and I'm going to sew together my patchwork, and then create my <laughs> own religion essentially. And I'm just going to fall under the label of Anglican, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, non-denominational, you know. And it's basically a free-for-all. And so many of us Anglicans like to sit back and be like, thank God I'm not like those, insert whatever tradition, you know, non-denominationals, where I just make things up on the fly. Well, you know, that finger ought to be pointing right back at us because a lot of the modern prayer books, it becomes a, like you said, choose-your-own-adventure. And what, we're better off than certain other Christians because we have a prayer book, but it still gives you the ability to do a patchwork of Christianity that doesn't have a, uh, a coherency? No, you know, that's what I think Dr. Tune is going to get at, and is starting to get at, is that if you're deviating from uh, what has been laid down as the, and it's not just because we're Anglican, and so we're going to keep being Anglican, it's because it's biblical and Catholic. He says that at the beginning of this paragraph, and that's why I became, frankly, Anglican is that I was drawn to being completely based upon the sacred scriptures, as he says it. I'm trying to pull back up to where he he mentioned it. Let's see. Therefore, if I write this book as a way of saying that I am an Anglican, that I want to be a biblical and Catholic Anglican. We say a lot Reformed Catholic these days. Same thing as what he's Mm -hmm. saying here. And that I see no hope of being an honest Anglican only within the context provided by further developments of the revisionist tradition of liturgy contained in the Book of Common Prayer 79 and Book of Alternative Services 85. So that to me, and then he says, here it is, classic Anglicanism, and we, a lot of people throw around classical Anglicanism just like the word evangelical to where it means nothing, but he defines it here. Classic Anglicanism in which sacred scripture has central place and where truly common prayer, capitalized common prayer, with its unique asceticism and spirituality arising from the prayerful reading of Scripture and receiving of Holy Communion, must not be allowed to disappear for want of effort. 
that's the reason why I joked, you know, earlier that we could just end the podcast because that's what we we're striving for. And I say we, you know, you can correct me just if you feel otherwise. But you know, <laughs> I'm in. Classical, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, classical Anglicanism it is biblical and Catholic. You know, what? Where did I come from? You know, I was raised United Methodist, fell in with the Southern Baptists, and really learned my scriptures. So God bless them because they really taught it to me. Went the non-denominational route. You know, being a young man thinking. Oh, yeah, you know, the more free-for-all, the better. And then, finally, I, I got honest with myself as a history major, and I said, I've never read church history. And that's where I got in trouble and realized, hey, you know, communion has always been a central aspect of worship. And it's mm-hmm. not just, you know, bread and wine with nothing to it. It's bread and wine with the spiritual presence of Christ. There's something happening there. Why else would Paul condemn those who are drinking uh, unworthily and unrepentant? Or not repenting, excuse me. So that drew me into the Anglican tradition because I was like, well, lo and behold, here it is, a biblical faith. So I'm not deserting the biblical faith that I have. And it has the tradition of being truly Catholic with a little c, of being historically Catholic throughout all the ages. So Dr. Toon really points out, if we decide to start revising this liturgy and start, you know, he doesn't say it, but this is what we're kind of agreeing with Dr. Toon on, that we're going to start putting various emphases and bringing in from other traditions how we worship, then are we really being truly committed to being biblical and Catholic? Are we being more committed to a patchwork of Christianity and then slapping the label of being Anglican? Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe the unspoken reality behind all this is in part that we've got this precious gem of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer Mm -hmm. that served Anglicans for centuries. And at this point, when we decide that, well, we're going to hold a new book in common, even though it happens to allow all these different variety of services and whatnot. Um, And yet now we no longer have common prayer with, it's kind of the Chestertonian point of giving, you know, tradition is giving votes to the dead. It's like yeah. we've, we've kind of excommunicated C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and, you know, and, and yep. all, these other, all these other historical Anglicans who up until the last century all had an almost identical um, liturgical experience in Anglican churches. And I think taking a hand grenade, wrapping it to the Book of Common Prayer... Uh, dipping it in ink and then just throwing it into a uh, a printing press, and then when the explosion takes place, saying, "Well, look at all this great variety that we can now celebrate." Um, I'm sorry, I just I'm a little bit attached to the to the pre-exploded one. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I think I want to Peter Tune is as well. Yeah, and I want to make clear, like to the listener, especially someone who's not familiar. The gut reaction is like, well, now wait a second. He said biblical and Catholic, and look, this, this, these new liturgies—they're trying to be more Catholic now, Andrew. You know, they're they're trying to go back to, to what you know, uh, Gregory Dix discovered, and trying to make it a more Catholic liturgy. And that's where I've got to say, you know, all stop because Dix's scholarship has been criticized heavily, and um, it's something that he goes back to looking at to some of the early church liturgies. And his scholarship on the so-called shape, fourfold shape of the liturgy has been heavily criticized to what we did in the 70s. I say we, I wasn't 
part, never was part of the Episcopal Church, but <laughs> the reforms that happened, or so-called reforms that happened in the 70s uh, and in the 60s with Vatican II, were really going in the wrong direction. They were not truly Catholic, and it was really based upon flawed scholarship. So no, we're not really being more Catholic and being biblical. We instead have kind of created this hybrid new liturgy that has elements, you know, of old liturgies, but it's not, right. you know, it, it, well, two points I want to make. It's not necessarily what the early church was using, so there's a problem with scholarship. And then number two, it devalues and basically says, oh yeah, the Book of Common Prayer, the classic stuff, it wasn't Catholic, is what you're saying to a certain extent. And that's not true. That Book of Common right. Prayer came from the Catholic tradition itself. That's the beauty of what Cramner did. Not only the language he used, but also what he actually put pen to paper was not just creating something out of thin air and saying, I'm going to make my own you know, Cramner liturgy and we're going to become Cramerians. You know, no, like he looked at what was there in the Greek sources and the Latin sources, drew out the best of both, created an English liturgy. And uh, I'm of the type that I'm not saying you can't touch it because it has. It's always been revised. You know, the Americans, we were notorious from the 1700s and 1786 mm -hmm. and 89, all the way to the 1928, on having ebbs and flows of what we kept and what we added and what we took away based on our influences from the Scottish liturgy. So things can be changed. I'm no fuddy-duddy on like, you can't touch it. It's the King James right. Bible. You know, and these were gentle revisions, it. though. But I'm I... saying that when you, yeah, when you look at it and when you make a change, let's keep it within the tradition let's make it an evolution from the purple tradition and not basically you know turn a side eye and say well that's not really catholic enough actually it is and some of the new liturgies and options that have come about are not necessarily based upon what the the early church was using so yeah well th those are all great points um i'd like to jump back into the text here I think um, you know we can kind of read through through the end of the chapter here, and then kind of give some final thoughts. Uh, Tune obviously has a lot to say about all of all of the things we've been discussing here, and uh, especially when it comes to the capital common prayer tradition. He looks like he's got a, a letter here from a, a bishop of Rhode Island, written in 1831. So why don't I read the f couple paragraphs leading up to that, and then do you want to read the letter itself? Yeah, sounds good. Cool. At the moment, it is just possible, I believe, by the judicious use of the new books to be an Anglican in terms of biblical faith and public worship, but the process of revision, which seems only to have just started, will surely make that possibility an impossibility soon unless a halt is called to further revision and doctrinal change, and unless we put the whole process into some kind of reverse gear by rediscovering the primacy of biblical faith. My pessimism concerning the new mix-and-match tradition in modern Anglicanism stands in contrast to that confidence which once was so widespread with respect to the common prayer tradition. Here is what J.P.K. Henshaw, Bishop of Rhode Island, wrote in 1831. Among the many causes of gratitude to Almighty God which distinguish our lot as Protestant Episcopalians, 
It is not one of the least that we are favored with a scriptural and established liturgy, which is entitled to the warmest commendation, not only as a directory for public worship, but also as a standard and preservative of sound doctrine. The prayer book has been beautifully and appropriately styled the daughter of the Bible, and probably there is no other work of human composition which has embodied so much of the substance and spirit of the heavenly oracles. Extracts from the Bible in the form of Gospels, Epistles, and Psalter constitute the greater part of the volume, and throughout the collects and the prayers that the spirit of the divine word breathes and glows and animates the whole. What can be more chaste and spiritual than its devotional services? What more humble and meek than its penitential confessions? What more fervent and comprehensive than its acts of intercession? What more full, ardent, and seraphic than its adorations and thanksgivings? How many of the followers of Christ in this day have felt their heart glow with heavenly ardor, as if touched with a live coal from the altar, and experienced the sublime delights of spiritual communion in the use of those prayers and praises in which the saints and martyrs of every age have poured forth their devotions to the Lord. An eternity only can disclose the multitude of instances in which the use of them has alleviated the pains of disease, assuaged the fears of the mariner amidst the terrors of the ocean, cheered the desolations of prison, and softened the bed of death. The liturgy is entitled to veneration not only as a devotional work, but as a comp compendium of sound Christian theology. All the fundamental and important doctrines of the gospel are interwoven throughout its various offices, and while our congregations statedly use it, they, excuse me, as our congregations statedly use it, they will secure against the introduction of gross and flagrant heresy. Wow, uh, and that was from the Communicants Guide, written in 1831, page three. Uh, Boy, you know, I wish Anglicans talked about the Book of Common Prayer that the way they used to. Um, mm -hmm. can, you, can you imagine someone writing something like that? I, I mean, I, I'm, al I'm almost like, you know, a little bit like, I don't know, embarrassed. I'm like, it just seems so braggadocio. But when you think about <laughs> it, um, like when, when the Lutheran churches were translating their liturgies into English, and this is very clear... If you, listen, if you use the old common service in your Lutheran parish today, they went to the Anglicans for the best, most beautiful English of the Mass, of the, the communion service. When the Church of Rome wants to preserve the best and most beautiful ritual and language from the English Catholic tradition, they create a whole uh, ordinariate in order to preserve that patrimony. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the Orthodox have done the same to some extent. Yeah. I mean, think about they how, really many, have. Pe yeah. think about mean, how like many people appreciate Cranmerian prayer book uh, liturgy more than Anglicans do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jesse, you make a great point. You know, here, here we are with the Roman Catholics, uh, with the Orthodox, uh, and with the Lutherans going to the classic prayer book, and they now they do obviously the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox make their changes. I don't know what the Lutherans did, if anything, 
but those changes, I know, I'm more familiar with the Orthodox uh, version, I think it's the St. Tikon, uh, I've got a copy mm-hmm. of this somewhere. Those changes are relatively minor. They're important because words have meaning, like I always say, and words have meaning in the liturgy in terms of doctrine. So there are some changes, but they're relatively minor. And once again, it goes back to the point I was trying to make earlier that that those classic prayer books, that tradition, it is Catholic. <laughs> the Roman Catholic right. Church and the Eastern Orthodox are adopting it. And the those who are on the extreme Anglo-Papalist side are saying, you know, we need to add more to the prayer book or take things away or not emphasize it. No, you know, like, actually, it's it's included in the uh, Eastern Orthodox version of the uh, uh, of the Western Rite and in the Roman Catholic uh, uh, Ordinariate. So we right. don't need to back down from our Catholic position. Uh, and not only that, to, but it's, it's thoroughly committed. Protestant as well. I mean, I, I can, exactly. can't tell you how many exactly. Presbyterians I know who are huge Cranmer geeks. You yes, know, I mean, yes. they love the 1662 yeah. Book of Common Prayer. Yeah. I gifted um, a 1928 to uh, two Presbyterian ministers who, who I love a lot. And uh, they're discovering uh, more and more liturgy in their own tradition. And, uh, I mean, they draw heavily off of uh, that 28 prayer book because of uh, the words of Cranmer. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, but if you're a Protestant minister and you ever have to officiate a wedding ceremony, chances are you're cribbing from our book pretty heavily, <laughs> you know? I, I mean, and same thing with burials and the rest, you know? Mm-hmm. I, it, the stan- it really does feel like, you know, our house, the Anglican house, we could say, has this sort of family treasure that everyone admires except for a good number of the people who actually live there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, who actually and, I mean, technically own the heritage, and yet we disown it while others embrace it, and that, that's that's the problem that that I see, you know. And like one point that I wanted to quickly make is that so Tomb's talking about the seventy nine prayer book, and he's got a, a whole chapter on the Psalter, but that's an an excellent example to highlight real quick on how the Psalter in the seventy nine was completely redone, like the Coverdale Psalter, mm-hmm. and the Coverdale Psalter had been. Uh, updated, slightly changed and revised, you know, over its iterations in the American context, but nothing sure. major. It was just, you know, a word here or there, maybe a sentence or two, very minor changes. And the 79 prayer book starts off with just a whole new Psalter. So radically different that, um, I own a copy of the 79 somewhere around here, but it starts off with Psalm 1. Instead of blessed is the man, as memory serves, as like blessed is the person or something like that uh, to make right. it more... Uh, gender neutral and the problem is you're taking away the the number one it has a language issue I'm translating it that way but number two you're taking away the the pointing to Jesus Christ that the Psalter right. begins with blessed is it's a the messianic man. prophecy man? Jesus yeah. Christ it's pointing to the new Adam and doing yeah, that it's not blessed changes. is the patriarchy <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like it was not going for like blessed are men because men are so much better than women. No, it's pointing to, blessed is the man, the man that we're looking for, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is embodied in the flesh of a man. And I got to give credit here to the 2019 prayer book. They did what they called a revised uh, Coverdale Psalter, where there's definitely changes in it, mm-hmm. but they go back to, blessed is the man. And uh, when they did their work, I've got to give some props to them because uh, at least what they said they did was they looked at some work that C.S. Lewis, uh, I think they said T.S. Eliot and some others had done on the Coverdale Psalter and 
to me, that's an appropriate way to revise a prayer book in the prayer book tradition. You know, I'll give right. credit on that, on the Psalter. But then I have more problems when we're still hanging on to, you know, basically Gregory Dix's, you know, shape of the liturgy, you know, in parts of, of the communion office where, you know, it's we're mixing and matching traditions to claim that it's Catholic. And sure, parts yeah. of it is, but our tradition is already Catholic. You know, we don't have to become something that we're not. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. I agree with all of that. So, I, I mean, yeah, always, it's always good to give credit where credit is due um, and, you know, point out that there are features of the 2019 prayer book that are good and, you know, good efforts and, uh, you know, we, we don't want to be come across as being completely dour and cranky, old uh, old Anglican millennials, or uh, what do we say we are? Are we are we millennials, Andrew? I can't remember. You know, we technically are, but uh, there was a gentleman who wrote an article. It's somewhere on the internet. Such a millennial thing to say, but uh, saying that we're the Oregon <laughs> Trail generation because we remember growing That's up right. using the landlines. You know, not just having a world of cell phones and computers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like having, when a floppy, we, we we know what a floppy disk is, yeah, and we yeah. don't mean the little plastic one. We mean the big, yeah, black exactly. yeah. thing you, you could. Oh shake yeah, I forgot and, those are also called. Yeah, that's not a real yeah. floppy disk. If you can't like <laughs> you know slap someone gently with it, it's not a floppy disk. You, know? yeah, you slap someone not, hard with it, and that's those hard disks. You know, you're. <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, so the Oregon so, Trail generation. You know, like, I, I distinctly remember like when we finally got a computer, and it was like. After Windows 95 had come out, the computers were so expensive, we still had like an MS-DOS computer, and those were a pain <laughs> in the rear. I hated MS-DOS, but... Yeah. <laughs> Things have changed. Things have changed. This is um, true. Well, let's, uh, I'd say let's finish off this uh, But chapter. if you like, I'll pick back up on uh, the last few paragraphs here. Yeah, do you want to grab grab those two and then... I can read the next two, or you can, you can just read the rest if you want, and then we can see if uh, there are any good nuggets there worth uh, worth unpacking before we close. Sounds great. The bishop goes on to speak of the order for the administration of the Lord's Supper as being nothing less than the uh, condensing of the excellencies of the ancient liturgies into a wonderful English liturgy. In this book, I shall be saying something similar to what Bishop Henshaw and many others have said about the common prayer tradition, but with less eloquence. However, my primary interest is in showing that a major purpose of common prayer is to enable believing sinners to know God in a personal way through corporate worship. Our God is the Lord, and we are made in His image and after His likeness to be His adoring creatures not only in this age, but for all eternity. Therefore, to begin to know Him now in corporate worship is to prepare to know Him in heaven, in the liturgy of the angels and the saints. Thus concludes the reading of Dr. Tim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Really, really great stuff. And obviously this is just the opening chapter of his book. And he's going to do a deeper dive. And, you know, he's starting with some pretty uh, audacious claims. Um but he's going to back them up, and I look forward to sort of unpacking all the, all the different sort of reasons why he thinks... I mean, he, he's someone who writes passionately mm-hmm. about the importance of the 
capital C, common, capital P, prayer, capital T tradition. And I think that's a voice that is somewhat missing today. To some extent, it's... And I don't want to sound crass here, but sometimes uh, people just become used to what's less good and it almost just becomes part of the scenery and we forget or we or we no longer have someone who can sort of remind us that we've settled for for something that when we didn't need to um and, and i almost feel this way and in, in certain grave moral issues you know uh like for instance abortion in north america i mean i think unless you're really sort of tuned into maybe like a pro-life network or something, mm-hmm. it it's pretty easy to just forget that it's happening. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's such so invisible. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there are, there are many things about church life that are a reflection of a disintegration within society and within our uh, sort of... A holistic body of Christ, you know, we're a sort of disintegration of certain principles of obedience. Of you know, these are the products of fracture rather than unity mm-hmm. and wholeness. And I think sometimes we get so used to it that it's like, well, I kind of this is my favorite fractured shard of the church. You know, <laughs> and, you know, we get this sort of like pet. Uh, preference for the way things are and um, once again I just want to invite our listeners even if you're really resistant to everything we're saying I mean let us know if we're if we're wrong or at least if you think so mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> feel free to tell us and you know are we overstating things but uh, I do invite you to sort of open up your mind to another perspective if not ours then Peter Toons mm-hmm. and you know just sort of let him be the the uh, the outsider voice commenting on certain things that maybe you see as normal or just part of the scenery. Definitely. And the only thing I'll add to that, Jesse, is that something that caught me early on in, uh, in what we read today was how uh, Dr. Toon emphasized, well, he didn't emphasize necessarily, but he mentioned it outright, the asceticism of the prayer book. And that's something that we've forgotten about. Uh, I don't know of, of too many uh, uh, Anglicans uh, who are laity who practice uh, the Friday uh, fast, or the Friday uh, abstinence uh, from mm-hmm. flesh, uh, which is something that we held in common with the Roman Catholics up until Vatican II. When I, I could be wrong with this on my history, but as I recall, in Vatican II, or as a result of Vatican II, even the Friday fast was lightened for Roman Catholics, uh, so they're not even required it to eat uh, only fish uh, uh, as flesh on Fridays or wholly mm-hmm. abstaining. And in the classic prayer book tradition, uh, even the 28 prayer book, so not until the 79 prayer book was adopted, uh, required you to fast uh, on Fridays. And I may be wrong. Maybe the 79 does require it on Fridays, but I want to say it made it optional or had some sort of qualifying language uh, that it's traditionally done. Uh, on Fridays, and that's language that's been even adopted in 2019. That uh, says something to the fact that it's traditional to uh, to have an absence from flesh on Fridays, and, uh, and then also to fast on 
Good Friday and then during uh, certain parts of uh, Holy Week. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get at is that living the classical perfect life, it's it's to deny oneself. It's it's very scriptural. It's denying oneself uh, from the flesh. Not only food, because obviously our Lord talks a lot about not only is there fasting uh, when he ascends into heaven, but he also talks about truly denying yourself from uh, the temptations of the spirit and of the body uh, in order to deny yourself, take up your cross, and to be transformed. And the beauty of the, the perfect tradition is if you're uh, doing the daily office or you're even attempting to do the daily office, it becomes a discipline. It becomes a rule of life that mm-hmm. echoes the Benedictine uh, rule of doing a, a common prayer in the morning and in the evening. If you're, if, if you're doing everything perfectly and it's hard to do it's easy to fail i'm not saying you're less of an anglican if you don't do all this every single day but if you do it you're going to go through the psalms every month i mean and if you can't even handle that much i don't say jump in you know wholeheartedly if you're new to anglicanism or you've never done it before but even just take up one office take up morning prayer or evening whichever one works better for your schedule just to start an office if you've got the 28 prayer book Go to the back where they have family prayer. Take up that shorter family prayer office. Do it with your family. It's a good way to start. You've got a discipline. Read one psalm. Read, you know, one uh, epistle. Read one from the gospel. You know, follow that lectionary to the best that you're able. And eventually, you'll start getting there to where you can finally keep up the pace. And when you do that, under the classic uh, Cramner uh, lectionary, you're going to go through the entire Bible through a year. As I recall, you go through the New Testament twice. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and the Old Testament once. You're going through the Psalter every single month. And uh, like I said, everybody's going to fail. No one's going to hit that ideal. I say no one, but you know, it's, it's hard to get there. But um, that's asceticism right there. Of like You are living and breathing the Word of God, so it's going to be a part of you. And right. the 2019 prayer book has that as an option of doing a yearly uh, lectionary, having a daily office where... You can go through the Psalms in 30 days or go through the Psalms in 60 days. Um, So the tools are there if you live the life of the prayer book. But now the problem we see, get back to what you were saying, Jesse, what do we see on the actual parish level is we don't see anyone really talking about it or informing or really discipling. We don't see a discipling of our churchgoers to be Anglican, to embrace this prayer book tradition, to deny yourself be discipled by the word of god by denying yourself from your sins and by denying yourself in terms of what you consume to remind yourself on fridays that christ died on friday you know, he, when we go on sunday i will eat again the holy communion i will receive christ as he has risen we're not making these connections to form faithful anglicans and that's the work that the clergy and the learned laity have is to really rebuild the culture of being Anglican in a post-Christian world, which is a hard place to be, but we've that's our duty. We've got to do our duty to disciple and uh, make sure we disciple church members, else we're just going to have church attendees who show up on a Sunday, take their Holy Communion, and then go off on the rest of the week, maybe show up for another program or two, but they're not actually being disciples, they're being attendees who will show up mm-hmm. whenever the the parish gets together, but not really embrace, be formed, and be sanctified uh, by the Word of God. Right. 
I'll get no, off that I, soapbox. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, it really it boils down to there's a crisis of authority. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which people... Um, and I think this... I find this amongst people who are sort of late of the Episcopal Church, but also people who are sort of new to Anglicanism, kind of bringing with them a sort of a la carte evangelicalism mm-hmm. um, as an attitude which is to say that they see the prayer book, they see the riches of Anglicanism as something that they can sort of choose to take on or not, or to whatever extent they prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, that's not obedience. You know, it, it, the way you described um, sort of the daily office or taking the Book of Common Prayer the classic book of common prayer as your sort of rule for a Christian life, it's it's like choosing to place yourself inside the same crucible that formed people like C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot, or W.H. Auden, or or other greats. I mean, I, I mean, theologically speaking as well, and and going further back, but. To say, well, I don't need that, or um, maybe this new crucible will be just as good, but it doesn't. It it no longer sort of uh, commands your obedience because you can say, well, I'm going to ch- take option B. You know, it's like it's like an athlete saying, should I do leg day or go, uh, you know, watch TV for a while. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, guess what? If you ch- don't choose leg day when you're supposed to, you're not going to be ready um, for what you need to do. Yeah. And if you know, if people are spiritually sort of out of shape, they're not going to get back into shape by having uh, a sort of common unifying uh, obedience um, be an option. Yeah. You know, just something that you can do if you choose. So, yeah, character formation, all of this stuff, I mean, it, it, it goes deep, much deeper than sometimes our conversations sound like. It sounds like people are saying, well, you just like Shakespeare talk. <laughs> and, it, and it really, yeah. it really it goes much deeper than that. Yeah. That's why I always um, caveat, I mean, you know, like uh, the blogging that I do, that I always highly commend the, the REC uh, modern language version because... They put it in modern language, but it's still the classic prayer book through and through. Because uh, for me personally, you know, I'm not so firmly attached. I prefer traditional language, but that's certainly my preference. But I'm certainly open to modernizing the liturgy, but keeping the tradition, the prayer book tradition, uh, so that someone who who looks at the modern or looks at the traditional language, and they're just like, I just I don't get it. You know, I don't see it. I, I have a heart for that. I understand. But if we're going to do modern language. Let's keep it faithful to the prayer book tradition, so that we don't end up discipling people, you know, into being a choose-your-own-adventure Anglican, you know, or doing something less than discipling them into a a uh, a Christian uh, in the Anglican way. Uh, else, you know, we we want to, we're Christians first, obviously, and I'll, the goal is to proclaim the gospel to all nations. But we also have got to disciple them. We're we're not about you know simply getting someone to make a commitment and then saying, all right, now just show up and take communion and you're a good Anglican. 
No, no. <laughs> the whole point of this Christian experience, this Christian life, is to be discipled. And so the Anglican way, in my opinion, best exemplifies a discipleship of forming you into being something that you don't want to be by nature. Because it's not easy to fast. It's not easy to pray every day. It's not easy to read the Word every day. And that's why having that rule of faith, that guide of the prayer book, is so helpful and so useful. But we don't want to take up and read. And that's what we've got to do. The, the one final note that I'll say is that for those who are not doing uh, the daily offices, if they're interested, and they're like, I just don't know if I have time. Look, Cradle of Prayer is a great resource. They now have a podcast, and uh, it's a, a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, it's a priest and I want to say a cantor, who do the daily offices every single day. They do it from the 28 prayer book, and uh, I'm not just saying it because I like the 28 prayer book, but I honestly don't know of anyone who's doing like the ACNA version of it, but the 28 prayer book is done, Cradle of Prayer, and they uh, do the daily offices, morning and evening prayer for every single day. So if you're riding in your car, pop it in, you know, and pull up that podcast and you can do it. Yeah, it's uh, terrific. Just just do one office, you know, like I said, just to get started and let them, you know, say it over you. You're driving in the car, because I say this from experience, that's how I got started into uh, doing this, is I'd pull it up before they had a podcast on my browser and play it from the browser when I drive into work, you know, 10 years ago, you know, maybe longer than that. And before too long, like, I knew the responses within, like, you know, a week, pretty much, on what the, the laity is supposed to respond with. And then after a while, you can start singing along with certain canticles that you re recall. And then, eventually, you've almost got the whole liturgy down pat in terms of what the, uh, the priest would be saying or what the deacon would be saying and what the laity responses are. And it just washes over you. Uh, it'll form your prayer life. You know, you'll be in search of a prayer and words of the Book of Common Prayer or entire prayers will start to come to you. And that's the beauty of it because it's just drawing back from Scripture. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many ways to get engaged and plugged into the Common Prayer tradition and uh, we, we want to promote those as much as possible because... Uh, we realize that this isn't a thing that's easy to just find in the wild. And, and a lot of times you kind of have to uh, cultivate and create it in your own study or living room or prayer closet um, in order to really experience it sometimes. So, yeah, we, we want to stay on top of that and be providing as many resources to get people plugged in as possible. Um, anything else, Andrew, final thoughts before we uh, turn it off? Uh, I've rambled enough. So, <laughs> uh, Well, it's been good Good to ramble with you. Um, just a reminder that people can uh, go to northamanglican.com and check out sort of the, the several articles that have been written on the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Um, Andrew, your your blog is through a mirror darkly. What, what's the the URL again? Yeah, so it's uh, through a mirror darkly. Through is T H R U because the full version was taken out. So through T H R U uh, a mirror darkly dot wordpress dot com. Great, and uh, we're on Facebook, Miserable Offenders, and we are also on. Twitter at miserable underscore pod. So follow us, interact with us, tell us what you think, and 
rate the podcast. <laughs> yeah, if you liked it, rate it and share it with a friend. Um, and with all that said, thanks, Andrew, and goodbye. Thank you, Jesse. Take care, buddy. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.